You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Tony Nader sits down with Dr. Ian McGilchrist, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, researcher, and author, to discuss our various human worldviews, perception, and decision-making. How can individuals and society be deeply influenced by the primacy of one or the other of two brain hemispheres? Dr. Nader and Dr. McGilchrist discuss the importance of each, and the dangers of excessively relying on only one especially the left half of the brain. In order to understand ourselves and the world, we need science and intuition, reason and imagination. The right side of the brain plays an important yet often neglected part in our ability to have a holistic, balanced perspective. Dr. McGilchrist's most recent publication is a two-volume work, The Matter with Things a sustained critique of reductive materialism which explores the questions, who are we? What is the world? What is the nature of time and space? And what is consciousness? He is a former fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and of the Royal Society of Arts, as well as a former research fellow in neuroimaging at Johns Hopkins University Medical School in Baltimore. He has published original research and articles in many papers and journals, including the British Journal of Psychiatry, the Wall Street Journal, the Sunday Telegraph, and the Sunday Times. So wonderful to be with you, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. You started off as a young person with an interest in the Tao, I understand, yes, uh, which yes. is Confucianism and also this holistic value of the oneness of life, uh, the basis of yes. everything. And then got into medicine, psychiatry, and the two sides of the brain and talked about them in a wonderful way in the master and his emissary and connected it to culture to uh, how the western world has evolved from that so it's really wonderful to have you and I, I, one word comes to mind about your work many words come to mind in this wonderful work that you've done but something comes to me as very important that we don't see very much in the world today actually or it's kind of almost disappearing is the sense of nuance the nuance of things the ability mm. to see plus and minus the ability to see that behind some things that might appear absolutely wonderful there can be things that are not so perfect and behind things that even can be horrible, there might be some things that can be uh, of value. And it's not all white and black, and there are shades and colors and everything in the world. So it's really a joy to be with you. Thank you for being uh, on this podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted. And I was particularly delighted by, I didn't know what word you were going to choose, you know, but nuance, that is wonderful because that is of the greatest importance to me to be able to give graded 
assent and dissent to things and see the good and the bad and see how they relate. It's part of seeing the bigger picture, isn't it? And that's very, very important. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I'd like to start actually by reading the quote from the channel Michael Christ, the quote by Jan. Our talent for division, for seeing the parts, is of staggering importance. So when you start by hearing this, you can say, wow, that's the most important thing and it's, it's great. And then suddenly there is a dash and Ian adds, second only to our capacity to transcend or to transcend it in order to see the whole. So this is a wonderful place. I, I would like us, if you, if you like us to start there, um, right brain, left brain, nuance, parts and whole. Mm. We are eager to hear from you. Yes. I suppose the thing I should say just at the outset, um, and I thought I didn't have to say it anymore, but I, I think I do, unfortunately, is my ideas about the right and left hemisphere are the results of 30 years research. And if you think that you know something about this other than what you've learned from my work, I would really ask you to put it out of your mind because much of it will be mistaken. So, yes, uh, how does it relate to what we've just been talking about? I suppose uh, a point worth making is that each of the hemispheres attends to the world in a different way. And there are good evolutionary reasons for this. Um, we have to be able to attend in fine detail to something in order to grasp it, to pick it up quickly, and to manipulate it, to make something. But we also have to have at the same time a completely different attention, which is broad, open, sustained, and vigilant. And the two hemispheres uh, have these two different ways of attending. This is not controversial. This is very well known to mainstream neurology and is easily seen after somebody has a stroke in one or other hemisphere. The scope and the nature of their attention changes. But of course the point is, and the penny didn't drop immediately for me when I discovered this, how important attention is. Attention grounds the world. It makes the world, the only world that we can know, that world that we experience it makes it what it is and it makes us what we are so the nature of the way we attend to things changes the world and changes us so i call it a moral act and in short the left hemisphere sees fragments and sees certainty it sees stasis it sees uh, decontextualized fragments, abstract, taken out of context, disembodied, general in nature, and therefore susceptible to being manipulated like building blocks. Unfortunately, this world is completely inanimate, and it is just a, a world of bits to be used. Literally, the left hemisphere uses the right hand. It uses language to make us able to specify and to manipulate. But the right hemisphere is seeing a completely different world, one in which nothing is ever completely separate from anything else, in which things are constantly flowing and changing, in which things are neither um, this or that. The left hemisphere wants it to be either this or that, because 
it's got to be certain. It's about to grab something. Whereas the right hemisphere sees, well, there are different ways of seeing this. And maybe we need both of them. The left hemisphere, that doesn't compute at all. The right hemisphere sees the need for the implicit, that there are certain things that cannot be put in language without denaturing them. And these include most of the things that we really value, like love, the, the world of the, of the spirit, of the sacred, um, uh, all, all the things that make life worth living, like music and art and poetry and drama and narrative and myth and all these things. The right hemisphere understands that the left hemisphere doesn't. And the right hemisphere also sees that everything must be seen in its context because the context changes what it is. It's, it sees an embodied world, not a disembodied world. And it sees one in which everything is ultimately unique. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Emerson who said, no two blades of grass are exactly the same. And this is true. Everything is really unique. It, we have a trick of the mind which groups things together, which is helpful, very helpful. We couldn't live without it. But that generalizing quality masks the fact that everything is, in fact, completely unique and yet not severed from or, or ultimately separate from everything else. That's wonderful. And of course, this is not the importance of this is not just about anatomy and physiology, which one can think, oh, right brain, left brain, etc. But about yes. how, how, how we deal with life, how our culture takes us in one direction or the other, and the implications of this on the progress of our humanity, our existence, and even our existential uh, reality, our, the threat to our world, to, to what we do to each other and to where we are going. And so it's really interesting in the sense that it localizes it in some way into two hemispheres, but obviously it's the principle of how to deal with things, whether maybe one hemisphere has also a contribution to that part and another part of the hemisphere can also contribute to specificity and to wholeness, that the two hemispheres are connected through the corpus callosum and they talk to each other. And we have, of course, many studies about split brain and all these damage to different parts of the brain that also indicate why, why you are also uh, based on scientific empirical findings uh, can talk about these tendencies of the two sides of the brain. So what's important in this is wholeness and parts on one hand and all the other implications of that and how we really need to uh, transcend the specific, even though, as you beautifully highlight, to be able to have it because we have to be in a functional level. Now, historically speaking, humanity started with more of a holistic kind of nature and that everything was based on belief, was based on some spiritual values. We don't know where things come from. So we ascertain and we assign them to some forces in nature that are maybe metaphysical or spiritual. And then because of different opinions, it seems to me, uh, and different clashes between opinions uh, from that perspective of the spiritual and the belief systems, there came the scientists who wanted to make things reliable, repeatable, and specific. And then science came up with the scientific method and the scientific conclusion 
but it ends up also with its own dogmas about the essential and uh, ultimate nature of reality. And science has become like the reference. Science is great, but I want to, to look at that perspective, East and West, ancient and new, the development of our cultures, where are we going, uh, reliance on something uh, specific, where is it leading us, and is it the best for humanity going forward? Well, you've certainly raised a lot of points there. Um, and I suppose much as I said, we have to unlearn many of the things that we think we know, like that the left hemisphere is rational but dependable. And the right hemisphere is a little bit quixotic or, or, or um, uh, a bit flippity gibbet, but, but, but is at least creative and so on. But we have to put all of this away as well. And one thing I want to emphasize right at the start is that this is not about science versus um, intuition or imagination. It's not about science and reason on the one hand being probably left hemisphere and intuition and imagination being right hemisphere. It's a much more important thing than that. It's that each of these has a left hemisphere aspect and a right hemisphere aspect. So the left hemisphere aspect of science that you've talked about is its tendency to become uh, fossilized and to be dogmatic and and to stick to certain things and rule other things out. Now, of course, we need that tendency. We, we mustn't just give up on an idea because we find one or two results that don't fit in with it. So it's perfectly normal that we should try to hang on to a paradigm for as long as it's helpful. But there comes a time when the weight of evidence is so badly against this paradigm that we then have to shift. And all the big discoveries in maths and in science uh, are dependent on a kind of understanding and insight that comes from the right hemisphere of the brain, from its ability to, to see a new gestalt, a new formation that is a whole. And it's described by so many great scientists and so many great um, mathematicians. I, I list a number of them and describe their discoveries in, in the matter with things. So th there is this distinction, but it's not between science and the other things. It's between a certain attitude towards science and another attitude towards science. And, it, you know, so... One person might say to me, but why, uh, I don't care where it happens in the brain. You, you know, you can tell me this happens in the right hemisphere, it's fine, it happens in the left hemisphere. I don't know where, what's going on in my hemisphere, I just know about living. But what I'm actually drawing attention to is two, as I say, completely different phenomenological worlds. One of them fragmented, dead, decontextualized, abstracted, and very much like a map or a diagram, or a theory about life. And the right hemisphere, actually the experience of living. So it's like the map on the one hand and the infinitely complex world that is mapped on the other. Now this is a very important distinction. And people have intuited, although they hadn't got scanners and they didn't know what was going on in different parts of the brain to the extent that we do now, people in Many ancient cultures, East and West, have known that there are, if you like, there are two ways of being. Pascal said, so different are these ways of being that people have thought we have two souls. But he's not alone. It's been commented on that you find it in um, 
in, in mythologies all around the world that there are these two, and very importantly, both are required, but one is much more important than the other. Now, this is particularly difficult for people in the West to understand because we've got a prejudice that everything where there is two, they must be equal, but that doesn't follow at all. That's why the first book was called The Master and His Emissary. So the master was the one that saw the whole picture and was very wise, and he had to delegate much business to an effectively a, a clever bureaucrat who could go about and do that business and get it dealt with um, and have that reported back to the master so that he could incorporate it. But the trouble is that the emissary is bright, but not bright enough. He, <laughs> he thinks, like many people who are not very clever, that he knows it all. Uh, uh, so th this is really a distinction which can be seen, you know, in any number of experiments, both in the laboratory and natural experiments when somebody has a stroke or a tumor, that the left hemisphere, left to itself, thinks it understands and knows everything. It's dogmatic, it's certain, it sees things clearly, even when it's made them up. I mean, literally just made them up. And, it, and if its attention is drawn to something that is completely wrong, like they've got a paralyzed limb, they will just completely deny that, that it's paralyzed. Or if they can't make it move, they say, it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to somebody else. So this left hemisphere is not down to earth and dependable. The right hemisphere is much more in touch with reality than the left. And the first part of my book, the matter with things, is devoted to going through how each hemisphere fares on things like ability to pay attention, to perceive, to form judgments on the basis of what one has attended to and what one has perceived, uh, to how does it fare in relation to emotional and social intelligence, how does it fare in relation to cognitive intelligence, IQ, how does it fare in, in, um, in relation to creativity? And the answer is that in every case, the right hemisphere is more in touch with reality, more able to contact reality, pays a bigger contribution to reality than the left hemisphere. So what is the left hemisphere for? I mean, somebody should say, well, you can't, you must have got it wrong. Why would one half of one's brain simply not be as good as the other at it? And this is because, I think, of the development of tools and the development of language, both of which define the human being. You know, I think it was um, uh, Jeremy Bentham who said that man is the tool-making animal. And we made tools and we developed language. And these are the ways in which we can manipulate the world. We can map it out and manipulate it. And and create a scheme for doing things and fighting people and annexing things and getting stuff. But the right hemisphere has been left, therefore, with the task of, with its 360-degree attention, rather than the three-degree attention of the left hemisphere, has been left with the task of holding the whole world in its hands. So that is why it's very important, because once you see that a certain way of thinking is spread everywhere only because it helps us grab and get and become powerful, and you see that another way of thinking has been celebrated throughout the world and in our own culture by the greatness of art, by the greatness of the best kind of science, by everything, that we are neglecting that in our modern culture. And we've become vandals, in my view. We are destroying the planet, we are destroying our society, and we are committing suicide. And that's because too much specificity, isolation. And even when we think of sometimes uh, diversity, it, unfortunately, it appears as if 
sometimes the left brain comes in and says, well, I am isolating, I am separating, I am specific, and what else can I do? I should be unifying, and therefore, let me also put these different things together and call them, oh, I'm doing my job, I have transcended my reality, rather than actually going to the essence of things, Mm. to the uh, gestalt, to the wholeness, from a deep, uh, a deep mm. level of understanding. It's very interesting that this dichotomy uh, is found on so many levels. For example, and just as a parenthesis, uh, we're not attacking the scientific method or science as you are beautifully saying, n- not at all. You know, we talk about nuance and you are one of the most nuanced people I know okay. uh, that of course science is very important mm. and the scientific method is great and continues to be very useful. It is when science becomes dogmatic also in terms yes. of defining the essence of things, for example, that everything is physical. Okay. But what's interesting in this case also is that Science itself, going to its final objective approach, discovered that the classical physics, the classical isolated reality of objects that are localized in time and space are underlined, are on the basis of something that is non-local, that is uh, more probabilistic than specifically defined in time and space, and then from just particles to fields and from fields to more unified fields. And so even when we look at ultimate reality, we find that there is that classical localization and there is that underlying wholeness that, uh, that is yes. at the basis of all of that. And you, know, you mentioned yes. also, yes. Descartes, you wanna say something about this? Well, yes, I wanted to say, uh, before we get any further into it, um, just to um, make a little side remark on the term specificity that you used quite early on, because um, I know exactly what you meant, and you were contrasting the ability to see the part from the ability to see the whole, but we need something else which the right hemisphere is capable of doing. It surprises some people that if the right hemisphere is the one that really sees the whole picture, how come is it is also the only one that understands uniqueness? Why is it that the left hemisphere cannot see unique anything? It just sees a member of a category. I've got one of those, I put it in this box, I put them in that box. So the left hemisphere's world is all categories. The right hemisphere also has categories. They're they're formed in a different way, more by what Wittgenstein called a family resemblance than by the possession of a particular um, detail. But what is so wonderful about this and why it's important is that I see the process of the cosmos, since we're heading there quite rapidly, I can tell. I see the process of the cosmos as being both about individuation and about integration. So it's an ever more proliferating, ever more multiple, producing ever more wonderful, unimaginable, unique cases, all the species of all the birds and so on, this wonderful multiplicity. Without that multiplicity being fragmentation, in no way does that threaten the integrity of the whole. In fact, it completes the integrity, because it shows what is there as 
I would say implicitly, and this is in David Bohm's uh, sense, the implicate order that becomes explicit in the cosmos. So it's like a flower that when it is tightly furled, it seems like one thing, but then it opens and there are all these petals and stamens and so on. But those are all not making the flower less of a single flower. It's making it more of a single flower by differentiation of what is there. So I just wanted to make that point. And secondarily, to say what follows that, which is that the right hemisphere sees that you can have both one thing and another that seem to the left hemisphere to be opposites. So it sees there is no real opposition between individuation and unification, whereas the left hemisphere can't understand that. These have got to be opposites, and it wants one or the other. It's a very either-or mental world, black and white, whereas the right hemisphere is the one, thank you, nuanced, <laughs> in which it's possible to see elements of both and to see that both are needed. And finally, this applies to their relationship. So the left hemisphere has an antagonistic relationship towards the right hemisphere. It's got to be either what it thinks or what the right hemisphere thinks. But the right hemisphere has a both and attitude to what it knows and what the left hemisphere knows. After all, in the story that gave the title to my first main book on this subject, The Master and His Emissary, the master appointed the emissary. The master knows he needs the emissary. It's just the emissary doesn't realize he needs the master. That's so beautiful. I mean, we see this also in, you know, in um, business and companies where the chairman of the board or the board of directors has to take a distance from the micromanagement of the company so that they can see the whole and the specific, uh, you know, either CEO or even the CEO has to be able to take a, a little bit of a distance. But then those who are doing the specific work, you know, building a machine, putting things in the right place, they have to actually do it precisely without thinking about the management and the whole business as yes. a whole necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we ref this is all reflected in, in how our life works also in society and all of that. Both are necessary in a sense, but if we forget, we don't have the expression of separation, which is manifestation, then everything becomes maybe mixed up and uh, at the same time, if we forget the unity at the basis of diversity, when you mentioned the flower, for example, the sap is also the basis of the tree that, you know, that produces the branch and then the flower and then the fruit. And it's all at the basis of the sap. And that's what we see in, in even physics coming to that conclusion that the fields are the basis of the fluctuation that lead to the appearance of particles, etc. Exactly. So we have to go to the field to be able to actually nourish the whole. We have to go to the sap to, to put the water on the roots so that we can nourish the different yes. parts of the, of the specifics or, you know, you corrected this very nicely, specific but unified. It's beautiful. Well, yes, no, no, there's a, a, a fine image that of the water that flows, as it were, through the entire organism and nourishes it in different parts in different ways, but is part of the life of the whole. I, I think that's, that's a wonderful image. And yes, I think what happens is that there is a tendency over time, at least there has been in the history of the West, and I just don't know enough about the history of the East, 
to be able to review it in the way that I did in The Master and His Emissary. But there seems to be a tendency for civilizations to start off with a very fine balance of what the left can give and what the right can give, in which the vision of the right is always the dominant thing and the left is serving it. But when the left thinks, I know it all, because it doesn't really see very much, which enables it to think it knows everything because it doesn't really see very much. When it starts thinking that it is the one that can direct everything, then civilizations begin to collapse. And this usually seems to not take very long, about 300 years in Greece, about the same in, in Rome, and about the same since perhaps the scientific revolution in the 16th 17th century that we we have we are what happens it seems to me is that a civilization overreaches itself in some way it becomes too big or too powerful because that after all is the the goal of the left hemisphere to acquire to get to grab and that in doing that it then has to become less than fully human, it becomes more mechanical, it becomes more bureaucratic, it becomes a vast administrative empire in which everything has to follow the same rules and in which the proportions of things, the sense of harmony of the parts is broken down and lost. And in our own world right now, what I see is the triumph of this left hemisphere's view that that not that we belong to nature, that we come out of nature, we are an expression of nature and we must go back into nature, but that nature is a heap of resource for us to exploit. This is perfectly the left hemisphere's idea. And, you know, we, we need to regain the idea that all living things, the whole living earth is an organism of which we are a part and we are responsible to it. And it is responsible to us. There is no ever one-way relationship in things. That's a, an important point because often in physics, there's a sense that, that, that A is impelled by a force to hit B, which is entirely passive, and then B moves and something else. It's a mechanical vision. But of course, in reality, there is nothing like this in the universe. Everything where there is a reaction is reverberative. And when things interact, the one changes the other, and the other changes the one. They never come away from this interaction without being changed. So it is always a seamless whole of flowing interaction. This is fantastic. It's beautiful. It these are wonderful observations and study of the nature of reality from different perspectives. And that leads us to, I think, two important considerations that we would be really happy to think with you about and see your, your feeling about it, that you also express in the matter of things and, and other writings. And that is fine. This is what we have end product. The brain has right hemisphere, left hemisphere. We see things from this perspective and that perspective. But how does it relate to what we can call the ultimate reality? You mentioned Descartes. And of course, when one mentions Descartes and Cartesian you know, approach and thinking, one always goes to that dualistic perspective of on one side consciousness and the other side matter and that dualism is there. And so when one thinks of left hemisphere, right hemisphere, one can think, okay, does one represent this side? Of course, in a, in a very, very crude way, the material physicalist perspective and the other one has the tendency to, towards the spiritual, the holistic, the, 
the other thing. Now, this is on the level of our ability to experience and to see and to deal with things and make decisions and what would be better to do this way or that way, which is great and so beautifully expressed in your writings. Now, how about how does it relate to the true ultimate reality? Is then uh, are people allowed then to to conclude maybe? And I know you don't because that's why I started with the Tao. Uh, uh, that ultimately it's a dualistic nature of life, and we have to kind of work with both of them, or reality and ultimate reality from your perspective is a monistic one that it has one that actually generates the other and in this case which is the generator is it matter that creates consciousness or is it consciousness that is primary and creates matter is of course i have my own point of view which you might guess but yes. i'd like to hear your feeling about yes. it yes uh, i think the important point is that we need both of these things that we describe, one of them as matter and another as consciousness. But we don't need somehow to unify two things that are separate because in my belief, they are never separate. So I think if you had to pigeonhole the way I think in terms of the categories of modern uh, academic philosophy, of which I'm not a huge fan, <laughs> I think you would call me a, a dual aspect monist. In other words, I believe that what is, is single, but that what we call matter is an aspect of this, whatever it is. And you pose the question of which is the, the base and which, is, which, which follows from which, which created which. I wonder, though, if I could suggest to you, and I wonder what you would think about this, if I said that is a very Western idea, that one thing must come before another in like a serial process. It's rather back to the idea of something hits something else. <laughs> Maybe they come into being together because they are one thing, and our language is not good because we, by consciousness we already think we've excluded matter, and by matter we already think we've excluded consciousness. But the way I sometimes put it is that it's like water, in that water is transparent and flowing and all the rest, we see it, it we can see through it, we, it passes over our hand. But there is also ice. Is that water? Well, it is, yes, but it's not at all, doesn't look like water. It's solid, it's opaque, it's so hard it can split your head open. It's something else, surely. And then there's, in this room, there is, there is water in the atmosphere. What? But I can't see it at all. So what, are you telling me that, that water is so many different, completely different things? Well, I would say yes. And I suppose that if you say, well, which one is really water? A lot of people would say, well, it's a flowing one. That's because it's what we mainly see. But these other things are different ways of seeing it. And an important point to make about matter is one that was made by the late 19th century um, Anglo-German Oxford philosopher, um, uh, Friedrich Schiller, uh, not, the, not the romantic poet, but the, um, the philosopher. Uh, and he said that m matter is something that no one has ever seen. 
Nobody has ever encountered matter. All that they have found is elements within their consciousness that have qualities that they call material. And I, that's a very good point. It's another way of putting what I always say, which is that I know that I know matter only because I have consciousness. But I don't know that I, I know consciousness because of matter. It might be so or it might not. And to cut a long story short, I think that the idea that the brain generates consciousness is a complete non-starter. It's not logical at all. And it, <laughs> it, it, the idea that um, matter that had no consciousness in it at all could suddenly step over to being subjective and conscious is, is an impossibility, a point made by many, many, many philosophers and physicists. This is wonderful. I cannot disagree more. Uh, in terms of primary and secondary, um, it's actually not in the sense that it was something and it disappeared and became something else. No. It's just it appears in different ways. So yes. there are different manifestations of whatever exactly. it is that exactly. we call humidity, water, gas, uh, ice. Uh, yes. There is an essence, uh, in a sense, to it, and that's, uh, you know, obviously also something we look at the end, ultimate essence, and that essence yes. uh, manifests in different ways. So, from the Taoist perspective, from the Advaita Vedanta perspective, from Parmenides' perspective, from, you know, the idealist perspective, and also to some extent, if they are not dualists, the panpsychists, the true monists, then uh, it is just a different appearance ultimately of an aspect of reality and yes. i cannot disagree more you know at all than you know that matter is something we know much less than consciousness because it is through consciousness yes. that yes. we apprehend things yes. through consciousness that we feel things we experience things we we can talk we can analyze yes. things yes. And that is really, in a sense, primary, but not primary in the uh, kind of hierarchical or historical sense, of course. Primary yes, in the sense yes. that it is there and it is, you know, our podcast is called Consciousness is All There Is. And I have written about how actually a field of consciousness manifests and interacts with itself to give the appearance of different values which are real on their own. But again, as we can see from your beautiful description, they are real as individual entities seen by the left hemisphere. Yes. Uh, and they are more together and holistic and more a field than a particle or a separate localized entity as seen by the, I would say, if I, if I'm correct, in this case, by the right hemisphere. Yes. And so um, this has implications also on how we deal with our life. Do we, mm -hmm. if the world is only physicalist, physical separate entities, then the left hemisphere is right to grab onto things and, and make more of things and uh, separate things, because this is how you survive. This is the reality. But if the reality is more holistic, is more spread out, more consciousness, more field-like, then this is where we should find the solution to our dilemmas and our problem and the you and me, and then I have to beat you, I have to be stronger than you, I have to grab what you have in order for me to be safe because you are a threat to me. 
you know this is uh, this is also uh, has a very important implication so the assumption of what reality is can have very important implications on what we need to do to improve our situation and so this takes us to the this next question which is what to do about it we are you you said it very strongly and you want to emphasize it that we are committing suicide because of the extreme left uh, hemisphere dominance yes, in our yes. approach and let's take a few minutes and talk about what can we do about it Okay, but before we do that, in the spirit of a leisurely conversation, I, I just want to respond to some <laughs> of the things you said just before asking that. So you raised very importantly the question of the way things appear, so the phenomenological world, which is actually the only world we can know. We can only know the world as it appears to us. And I think that it's a point that was made by Niels Bohr very well, that in science we are not actually able to find out the true nature of things. We simply find the ways in which the appearances can be made to cohere. So really that, could, that is said about science, but it can be said about the whole human intellectual spiritual adventure is that we are all the time finding a gestalt, an overall picture, if you like, of reality of the cosmos, which is coherent with our experience of it. And that that involves both, to emphasize again, the, the our individuation with the um, togetherness. So that, for example, uh, although it is true that it is terribly damaging that um, we think there's me and there's you and what you have, I don't, and I must get it from you and so on. There is a certain sense in which it is true that everything evolves through a degree of competition. But it's much more true that everything evolves through a very large degree of cooperation. And I mean this literally about the evolution of life. That when you look at the history of the evolution of life on Earth, it is largely a story about intelligent organisms finding ways of cooperating. And of course, competition comes into it. But this is fine. In a, I use sometimes the image of a loving relationship. In a loving relationship, the love doesn't abolish you and me. It makes you more you and me more me through the love we have for one another. So we don't lose our individuality. And we do have different... I mean, if, if I uh, eat all the food and you don't, I, I become full, you starve. I mean, there are realities here. But the fact is that what one sees overall is that this individuation is not the same as separation in the sense of ultimately, dis, you know, they can be distinguished, but they should never be thought of as separate. And so the whole story of the creation of the cosmos is one of individuation, of this multiple, the coming into being of the one and the many. And I... I Chapter 21. Of Otherwise, my, there is no manifestation. There's no manifestation. And also, I, I, know, I think manifestation is a word I'd like to just mm, stand back a second from, because manifestation, I know you don't mean this, but to some people it means, but it's not true. You know, a manifestation oh. is, is just the way it happens to look, but it's nothing. But we come back to this question of what can we know? What would it mean to say that 
the world isn't really like this. It's just the way it, we can know it because we can't get behind our knowledge of it anyway. I mean, not even if you're an enlightened saint. You can only know what your enlightenment has told you about what you see and experience. So it, it, it's a kind of a, a problem there. Anyway, to come to your extremely good and very difficult question, what do we do? Um, I don't have easy, satisfactory answers to this because what happens is the left hemisphere immediately says, oh, I see, so he says we do this and we do that and we do the other and then everything will be fine. But I, that is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to re-envision ourselves and the world. I begin this new book, The Matter With Things, by asking, as Schrodinger asked after the war, in the words of Plotinus, who are we? But we, who are we? And that is a, a central question. Who are we? What is the world? And what are we doing here? You know? And these are questions that have either become um, cheapened or somehow dismissed so that these very, very important and central questions are not being asked. So we do need to understand ourselves better. And one of the ways we could start would be by abandoning many of the ideas that we have now about what we are and what the world is. First of all, we need to get rid of the machine model. The machine model has its uses when you're making a machine. It's made us very powerful, what the left hemisphere wants. But as a model, it doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. We know that organic life, that organisms, that living things, and that is, after all, who we are, are not machines, and I, I, I investigate this at some length in that book, uh, in The Matter With Things, um, we're nothing like machines. And I think that the comparison with the machine is a very dangerous and debasing one and takes us away from the sense of either having any autonomy, any purpose, or any values, not only values in ourselves, but values in the world. And so I argue in, in that book towards the end that values and purpose are not things that we invent, but things that we discover. They are there for us either to find or to fail to find. Lots of people fail to find them because of the toxic culture we live in. But the, they are there. And I think one of the, if one can talk about these things in, in any sense of a, being a purpose and a direction. And I must say, the more that you look at the world, the physical world, the inanimate world, as well as the animate world, it seems it does have a purpose or direction or drive towards certain things at the expense of others. Um, if there is that there, then it is, it is a, a something that creates complex beings like ourselves that don't have survival value. There are tiny bacteria at the bottom of the ocean, single examples of which are getting on for a million years old. So they have survival value perfectly. And then evolution went on and created trees that last for hundreds of years and elephants that last for a bit longer than we do, maybe. And then you know, people like us, we last a puny 70 years. What the hell? So it's not about survival. It's about something else. It's about, I believe, about being able to have an encounter, a response to what is. We have been created out of what there is to be that other that responds to it. And this is a very profound idea in virtually every 
a spiritual tradition in the world, that there is something that is called forth out of the cosmos to be that something that is not fully controlled or fully contained in the creative urge of the cosmos, but can be a free partner, because it's only when there is that freedom that there can be truly love. Love exists between in a situation which is not 100% controlled. So there has to be risk, there has to be possibility of creativity, and in that relationship, human beings find the things that they value. And these are what we no longer talk about. We, you know, let's look at truth. Look what's happened to truth in the in the last hundred years. I don't mean just, of course, the classic example of um, Donald Trump and uh, and his so-called post-truth era, but the ways in which truth has been diminished by being thought of as either just a bunch of facts in the science textbook, or on the other hand, by many of the people in what used to be called properly the humanities, but who have ruined the humanities postmodernists who say, oh, we make it all up. You know, there is nothing that's true because it's just what I imagine or what you imagine. But I hold for a different point of view, which is neither sort of fundamentalist realist on the one hand, there's just stuff out there and we play no part in it. And what we have to do is register it like a Geiger counter or a photographic plate. And neither is it, on the other hand, this um, entirely subjective reality in which we make it all up. There is something between something that is other than me and me. And it's that encounter, which is my experience, which contributes to the cosmos in its own small way. And that's true of every single living individual. So they help make what is real by the way in which they respond, the way they attend and the way that they live. So beautiful, so rich, there's so much to think about and comment, but it's all self-explanatory and beautifully presented. So a couple of things come to mind before I dare to propose a kind of a solution yes. that goes along these lines, which integrates actually both the right and the left hemisphere. Wonderful. But just a thought came to my mind uh, as a simple example. Uh, it's a theory, of course, I don't know if it's so right. The reason why Homo sapiens survived, let's say, and Neanderthal didn't, isn't because Neanderthal's brain was smaller, it seems it was bigger, bigger. and they were stronger. Mm. Uh, and so the reason the Homo sapiens uh, survived is because they work together. They, they have more probably at that time a right hemisphere kind of tendency that accepted, as you said, individuation, but put it together in an ability to see the group uh, as a power. And so if you have a Neanderthal that is very strong, but isolated in their thinking and separating and not having a right hemisphere, I'm just using terminology that we learn from talking to you and reading you also, of course, then they will not be able to survive against a group that sees the group as a oneness. And that's how the Homo sapiens with almost, you know, with a lesser brain, in a sense, to start with at least, survive uh, and beat the others who were originally having the better chances with a bigger brain and stronger physiology. So this is a very interesting, uh, just an interesting thought. On the other hand, in terms of the solution, it's, it's clear that with your deep nuances, you don't reject the importance of the left hemisphere and its functionality in the world. And you highlight the importance of the 
you know, the master, not just the emissary, that the master has to keep things together. Now, what would be very important is how both talk together, how the corpus callosum can be enlivened so that the discussion right and left hemisphere mm -hmm. gets more open and more accepting one of the other. And this is where, based on my research and um, what I have devoted a lot of my work on and time on, is technologies of consciousness. Now, we don't want to talk about technologies because a lot in terms of, because <laughs> it brings us back to machines and technical things, but it's a technology of awareness, technologies of the mind. And there are ancient techniques uh, of meditation, mm. such as transcendental meditation, mm. that have been shown literally to, to increase the coherence between right mm -hmm. and left mm -hmm. of side of the brain mm -hmm. and between front and back and mm -hmm. between also up and down because we're talking right and left but of course there is the whole vertical direction of the old brain the new brain which i think you also talk about of course yes. uh, the brain that is instinctive that is leading to fight and flight responses and the upper side which is particularly frontal and prefrontal cortex which is anticipation of the future, music, and, uh, you know, thinking of philosophy and art and all of these things that are more integrating. And so the technique of transcending, because as we started with the importance of specific or individuation, at the same time transcending it, so that is the master. So we have to enliven the master also, and enlivening the master is the one who takes a step back Mm. and looks at the whole picture. Mm. And this is what actually the technique and which is called transcendental, mm. transcending mm. to transcend. It's not just a meditation in terms of contemplation, mm. but it's a technique that allows the mind to settle down so that the right and left hemisphere talk to each other mm. and are open, the channels are open and whatever are reserves of the brain that are not there, now they start opening up, you know, the association fibers, if you like, between the right and left and between front and back, etc. And so this, for me, can be also a very important aspect. And what we have seen is that people who practice this technique, mm. they have this brain coherence, which is studied in the lab. It's not just, uh, you know, uh, an idea. Yes. They actually have better IQ. They have better relation, better behavior. Uh, less uh, less conflict with others. We have mm. taught these techniques in schools uh, with underprivileged people where or situations where there are conflicts and crime. And we have seen the difference very profoundly and more cooperation and more nuancing in one's behavior. So maybe we can look at also making the brain more whole through such technologies as part of the awareness, what you talk about also, the importance of being aware of what we are doing, being aware where we are going, and by raising consciousness and improving awareness in a way that is available as a simple technology of the mind, technology of consciousness. Yes. 
Well, I, I agree, of course, that um, meditation and even mindfulness, which is a simple technique that almost anybody can use, is a, is a very important way of rebalancing the brain. Um, as you know, in, in the normal waking state, there is a, a degree of preponderance of left hemisphere activity over right. But during these kinds of meditation, it becomes much more equal uh, which is, which is, in, in other words, the sort of thing you're talking about. So this is very important. But I suppose, um, I think it's quite complicated about, um, much in the spirit of everything that we've been talking about, there is need for both difference and sameness, for unity and differentiation. I sometimes say um, we don't want either, either or, or both and we need both either or and both and and we need in other words <laughs> the, the the way the left and right hemisphere work together best is not by just being fused and doing the same thing in fact many disabilities come from the failure of inhibition by one hemisphere or the other and a, a lot of corpus callosum traffic is although it's it's um uh, in in essence, it's glutamatergic more than it is GABAergic, uh, i.e., it's more excitatory than inhibitory. Its overall effect is very often is more inhibitory. So it's it's often saying no, this is stuff for me to look at. And so there's a a partnership, rather like the description of the loving relationship that I was uh, mentioning a few minutes ago. A good partnership is not one in which the two partners do the same thing and get mixed up, but in which they do their what they do best, but do it in synchrony with one another. So I just wanted to make that point, because I think... It wouldn't be better if, as it were, all the floodgates were opened and everything in the brain united with everything else, because things only come about by a form of kind of sculpture. I mean, it would be like preferring the complete block of stone out of which Michelangelo carved his David to the David in which stuff has been moved out. So a lot of the development of the brain is about differentiation and inhibition. And there are more inhibitory neurons in primates than there are in any other animals. And there are more inhibitory neurons in humans than there are in any other primate. So the great development of the human brain is inhibition. And the corpus callosum has got smaller in relation to the brain over evolution, not larger. So it occupies a smaller uh, percentage of the brain and much of that traffic is in any case as I say inhibitory and that was one of the things that really piqued my interest when I started some 30 years ago or more even on this trajectory that I've been following so while I think it's absolutely right that what we need is a proper working together like a dance in which everybody is contributing their part what we shouldn't think of is that this is any, in any case a sort of loss of independence or or of individuation, that there are different things that the brain is able to do. And I wonder if, I don't know, this is a speculation rather like your speculation about the emergence of Homo sapiens, because I, I think there is evidence that earlier man was also quite peaceable and sociable, but, but in any case, it's an interesting speculation. But, but um, when it comes to um, consciousness, then I think it may be that parts of the brain act in fact, perhaps the whole brain, I argue, in fact, in this book, that the whole brain is, in fact, a filter. So it's not 
certainly not making consciousness, nor is it simply passively like a radio set transmitting consciousness, but it's sculpting, molding, filtering consciousness. Um, William James had this wonderful image. He said, it is like my voice. I have a voice which is peculiar to me, but it only exists because air from my lungs comes out through my mouth, but there is a there is a barrier in the larynx which which inhibits some of the flow, and it's that that causes me to be. And I believe that our relationships to one another are like this: that consciousness is single ultimately, but as air is single ultimately. But the particular voice that is William James's comes from a certain filtering activity, and that what maybe happens. People often ask me, and I don't know. This is not science; it's my speculation that what happens when you take uh, mind-altering drugs is maybe these you know interesting ones that give people something like experiences of the of the whole cosmos that what happens is that the frontal lobes are relatively shut down and the frontal lobes are above all about filtering and stopping immediate responses and therefore make it possible for us to live our daily life but maybe when this happens the frontal lobes relatively shut down it's certainly not true that they somehow liberate the right hemisphere or suppress the left, which is sometimes said. I know that is not true. But I think there is evidence that they may cause suppression of the frontal lobes. Unfortunately, in my case, they make no difference. I, I, I never experimented with drugs when I was young, but since people have got interested in my theories, they've encouraged me to take under supervision certain <laughs> mind-altering substances, and I have to report absolutely not a glimmer of anything that changed. <laughs> this is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> No, the whole the whole description is wonderful because communication is not about excitatory uh, only. No, uh, it's also about inhibitory. You know, the neuron, the the the, the exactly. motor neuron, when exactly. it sends information, it's actually exactly. an inhibitory to activate the muscle, which is you know for people. What do you mean? Yeah, you inhibit so that it activates something else and yes. and like that. So inhibition yes. uh, is also a means of communication and saying you please, I'll be quiet. You yes. can tell the other you be quiet a little from this side. So let's see how we can then find a way that uh, if you quiet this side of yourself and I quiet this side of myself, then we can find exactly. uh, the, exactly. the, the common basis of things. In fact, in the, in the theory I present in my book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, in motion, uh, the ability to actually become real, I, I was going to say manifest, but since it has this dual meaning, uh, just to hold it back, is actually through inhibition. So inhibition of yes, the wholeness. Yes. To, al to allow the parts to appear. So it's as if the absolute has to hide itself yes. and, and appear as, as small parts. So this is, I find this wonderful the way you describe it and so, well, so in, uh, insightful. Well, the, that idea of it having to be hidden is there in philosophies going back thousands of years. That, you know, it's there in my, my, my favorite of all time philosopher Heraclitus, you know, that, that, that nature hides. And, and I think this is right. So I sometimes say it's a bit like um, a cell that has 
pseudopods or outpouchings, you know? And if you were in the middle of one of those outpouchings of the membrane of the cell, you would look around and see yourself enclosed on all sides. But at the root, at the base of the foot, you are completely joined to the cytoplasm of the whole cell. So I think that is our condition in this life, that we are somehow surrounded in such a way that only some of us see that we are completely connected. Absolutely. So the hiding process leads to appearance of individuality and yes. the purpose then yes. is yes. to unhide maybe and then discover yes. that we are that reality. And if we keep hiding ourselves in our smallness, we are committing actually suicide is using your own terms. Well, I think we are at the moment, yes. And another thing that follows from it um, is the importance of not doing and the importance of not knowing, which are very much emphasized in all Eastern traditions, as you must obviously know. Um, and, you know, there is an ignorance uh, that comes before knowledge and there is an unknowing that comes after it. And I think the point is that um, the, the inhibition of doing things actually is creative, that things come into being through not doing other things, just as you were saying, that we have to still what they call monkey mind in order that another part of the brain can, can function. And that, as I say, the sculpture is made by discarding stone, not by putting it together. And this is a kind of answer to how we should proceed is the first thing we should do is to stop doing all the damaging things we're doing that we know don't work. And how do we know they don't work? Well, we see the poisoning of the oceans. We see the dying of the forests. We see the, the destruction of the habitat of indigenous peoples. But we're also extremely unhappy as a society. The, the rates of anxiety, depression, you name it, are sky high and and not just because we now are more aware of it there's evidence i go into in the book that it really is, we are really a much more miserable people than we used to be and that other peoples who are not um modernized in the western way uh, can still try and keep away from it are so you know stopping doing things is very important and we, it's not just about go 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 it may be about stop withdraw contemplate you know Beautiful. Transcend. Transcend, Transcend, as you say in your quote on the side. And then it Transcend will... is go, to, go beyond, go beyond. <laughs> yes, and then it will come to you what it is to do. If I tell people, I think you should do this, it's just limited to what goes inside my, my head here. But if I say to people, stop doing what you're doing, attend, not just in a passive way, like doing nothing, but actually like straining your ears to hear something, be open to try and pick up like a faint message that it's coming. If you attend to that, things will come to you, whether you say it's from your unconscious or whether you say it's from the wider spiritual cosmos, it doesn't matter, but you will be guided to what you need to do. Whereas if you keep talking and saying, we should do this, we should do that, no, no, let's have a committee, you're not going to make it happen, I'm afraid. Although, at some level, at some level, the left hemisphere has to get to work and say, okay, I organize a party of people to go and do this and so on. But we're so <laughs> stuck in that mentality that we make committee after committee and bureaucracy after bureaucracy and nothing actually changes, you know? Wonderful. In my talks, I, I give an example, a sad example, unfortunately, very sad, uh, of an Eastern airline flight from JFK to uh, Miami to the Everglades, and this was almost 50 years ago exactly. 
And, and during the flight, there were very, very experienced pilots uh, and an engineer, uh, so three pilots. Uh, and they, when they came to land, they put the gear down. So the gears are down. And then part of the training is to check that there are three green lights that come, you know, two for the back gear and one for the front. And, and one wasn't lit, that little bulb didn't light. And so they cannot land because if the front gear isn't down, the plane is going to crash. So they put the plane in um, autopilot uh, to check it out. They told the, the tower that they're going to do that. And the tower said, fine, you know, solve the problem. And they got so busy with the little light that they actually literally forgot the plane to fly the plane and the autopilot had disconnected. They sent the engineer down to check to see if the, if the gear was down or not. And they were fuddling with this little light and going so stressed about it, they forgot to fly the plane and then the plane crashed and killed most of the people on the, on the plane. And so this is, this is a terrible thing and this is again the left brain getting so overdrive about a little bulb which turned out to be just the bulb wasn't working it's not the whole thing and that's a real situation and, and i often say how much we crash our life because we are on so yeah. many point yeah. values uh, we forget the broad comprehension we forget to see the wholeness and so since then, actually, the FAA installed what is called situational awareness. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you also yeah, sometimes yeah. take examples about piloting. Yeah. Have you learned to fly at all? Or no, no, I, no, I haven't. But I think that that is a brilliant story. I didn't know it. So thank you for that. I, I may well use it in future. But that that is... That is very much like what's happening at the moment is that we are fussing about details and, and about things that really don't matter at the same time things that ultimately matter hugely and will lead to our destruction, not the planet, because the planet will always reform, regroup, recreate itself and something else will come forward. But but we will we will see sadly the end of humanity because I'm not one of these people who thinks for all that we get things wrong and for all that we can be seen as rather mean and whatever one likes to say, I think that there is something wonderful about the human spirit and to have lost it would be a tragedy. You know, a worm is a wonderful thing, but, but J.S. Bach is something else. <laughs> <laughs> talking about nuances this is wonderful so it's really great to be with you i've taken a lot of time uh, of your time but it was a delight we could go on for hours we could go on for hours <laughs> yeah it's fantastic i look forward to meeting you soon where where are you in these days uh staying in in what part of the uk um, i live on a scottish island off the northwest coast of britain uh, the Isle of Skye. Ah, that's but I, I do I do sometimes travel, and I was in fact in California only a matter of weeks ago, um, and I may well be coming to the East Coast in the spring. I don't know yet, but I think I will. So the East Coast of America. So it would be lovely to meet you, Tony. Yeah. Oh yeah, wonderful. The Isle of Skye, name and form. <laughs> it's, it really gives that <laughs> to see from a distance. Look at things <laughs> taking a distance from the sky. That's wonderful. That's lovely. Really a delight to be with you. Anything else you would like to add in conclusion? 
Not at all, Tony. I mean, it's just been a huge pleasure, and thank you very much. And you know, maybe one day in a few years we'll we'll meet again and do another one. But uh, let's hope, anyway. Yeah, let's do more. Wonderful. Even better if we can meet in meet in real life, as we say nowadays. Yeah. We'll arrange that. I'd like to go to the Isle of Skye and meet. It will. It will be here. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.